On today's episode of The Data Show, my guest is John Akrod, co-founder and CTO of Silicon Valley Data Science. We talked about two popular tutorials that John teaches at Strata, architecting a data platform and developing a modern enterprise data strategy. And uh, we also discussed John's prior experience at Accenture and uh, other companies along his uh, big data journey. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Riley Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with John Akrid, co-founder and CTO of Silicon Valley Data Science. Welcome to the Data Show. Nice to be here. So let's start with your background, which uh, has many, many interesting nuggets in it. But one thing that our audience will find particularly interesting is how old school you are. Clementine, <laughs> come on, Clementine. <laughs> Uh, so tell us about SPSS and Clementine. Oh, I'd love to. So um, Clementine is is the the name of a song. Oh, my darling Clementine, which was was a song sung by uh, gold miners. So the uh, the naming the story behind naming uh, the the data mining product Clementine was after an old gold mining song. And um, for for those who aren't familiar, Clementine was, I think, one of the earliest uh, data mining tools that featured sort of a directed graph that allowed you to express your data flow. Um, and was it, uh, was it, it? It was for non-programmers, right? Uh, yeah, it was. It was basically a a tool that allowed you to apply a lot of advanced um, algorithms, both statistical and machine learning, in in origin. So everything from neural nets and uh, back then, before they were deep, uh, just yeah. plain plain old neural nets and decision trees. Uh, before we had random forest <laughs> um, classification and regression trees, but also things like linear regression, generalized linear models, and all those kinds of fun things. But you didn't actually have to. Um, um, program in a text editor. You could you could bring the data to those, so to speak, in uh, in a graphical model to express both the sources and the joins and the kind of filtering and that kind of thing that you would do in, in data prep leading up to to training or executing that model. Which was a very interesting innovation at the time. As a as a as a person who runs a team of data scientists, an observation I've I've made is that they they don't all necessarily, um, as a natural course of business, write the world's best SQL. So there's actually some advantages to um, letting letting a data scientist express a data flow in that graphical format because it allows allowed us under the hood behind the scenes to optimize those SQL calls so that, um, for instance, if you're if you're uh, if you're algorithm needs a, a sorted input to, to function properly, why not push that back to, I don't know, the Oracle database you're running on? Because Oracle probably uh, optimized that sort algorithm pretty well. And, um, you know, so in terms of uh, the user base of Clementine would be the same people who were using, there was another product from SAS, I forget. Enterprise Miner. Enterprise Miner, right? Yep. And then, uh, so was it, how big was the data back then. Ah, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't distributed, right? Um, no. By so, in theory, you could be running on top of like a, a an Oracle database that was distributed under the hood uh, and things like that. But but um, but no explicit distribution, or for that matter, you could run on top of Netiza. And actually, we built 
a method of pushing the algorithms down into the field programmable gate arrays that are inside in the TISA box to do some of those early things. So the, the biggest thing we were doing back circa, let's say, 2004 or five, when, when I was working on this stuff, was actually the process of netting out the charges between cell providers as calls hop networks. So basically, any um, any cell call that isn't entirely within a provider's network, they, they basically need to add up sort of their uses of each other's networks and net all that out. So that that was, you know, billions of rows of, of call record data that they were shoving inside an Atiza box uh, to do that kind of um, netting and, and, and um, manipulation of the data. And, and then ultimately applying some actually fairly interesting algorithms around the pricing and things like that. But uh, that was sort of the biggest thing back then. And now, you know, we could almost do that on a on a well powered uh, <laughs> a well powered desktop or something. There were uh, there were actually a few interesting things about that generation of software, from what I remember. One is uh, besides the fact, as you said, it allowed regular users to use both statistics and what we now call machine learning. I think back in those days it was called data mining. Yep. <laughs> um, but it also, I mean, I think that generation of software, you started seeing people analyzing text and and, and drawing uh, heat maps on, on uh, I guess, uh, drawing uh, geographic distribution charts, right? So I think, I think Clementine, you could, you could do color-coded maps. Absolutely. And one of the great things um, about working at SPSS at those time at that time was that that um, Wilkinson had just come out with oh, uh, Leland. Leland had just come out with a language of graphics um, yeah. grammar, and grammar grammar graphics thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you apart from the name and the title I was perfectly right no. um, so so that was a really powerful concept and allowed us to to build really cool visualization tools on top of Clementine uh, that would allow you to do things like really really nice uh, plotting of things on maps or, or heat maps and, and, and the like. The other really interesting thing was SPSS bought um, a company called LexiMine or LexiQuest. I can't remember which was the company and which was the product, but essentially embedding machine, embedding um, NLP style tools into that data mining platform, um, you know, made both influenced my view of the architecture because there it's really explicit. You're, you're sort of piping some raw data through this NLP algorithm that's spitting out structured data on the other end that you're feeding. And it was very, very unusual for people to work on unstructured decks. Oh, was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I rem it was still state-of-the-art back then, like somebody conducts a survey, uh, you know, with all the, the five-point five five point scale questions and then hands the the, the survey uh, whoever bought the survey the stack of, of verbatim actual freeform responses and a you know a stack of paper that nobody ever reads so right. so you know there was all kinds of, of interesting detail around customer experience and preferences and that's that's just around you know customer satisfaction or survey style results we we also worked on a product at that time called text analysis for surveys which is a you know SPSS did a lot of interesting work at that time and, and presumably is still doing so with an IBM around making that kind of thing accessible to the analyst right so it was a nice a nice tool that made some of the analysis you can use you do using text processing and NLP style tools on surveys but in a way that made it tractable for somebody who wasn't used to working with those kinds of tools. By the way, for you youngsters out there, the grammar of graphics actually ended up influencing two very popular things. One is ggplot of Hadley Wickham's uh, R package. Uh, 
So GG is really grammar of graphics, and then uh, Tableau. Yeah, it's a it was a really important piece of work because it allowed an abstraction from the the actual display format and the the data prep. It allowed you to basically express the transformation from whatever table your data is sitting into into the actual um, graphical representation, but it wasn't specific to any graphical editor. So it was a way of describing that so that you could make it theoretically portable. So the modern John Acred, as we know, uh, <laughs> emerged out of Accenture. So I think some of the things that uh, you ended up, you guys ended up uh, Pioneering in uh, SVDS probably came out of your experiences at Accenture, is that right? It, it's true. So um, after SBSS, before SVDS, my one stop in between four-letter acronyms that start with S, I guess, um, was at Accenture's R&D lab, um, where I, I started working on uh, one of the first sort of analytics teams within Accenture that that uh, was familiar with advanced uh, statistical and machine learning techniques um, with some great colleagues like Raid Ghani, who went on to become Obama's chief scientist, uh, and several others, but but a really cool team uh, working very early on. It was funny because when I left uh, SPSS, everybody I spoke with there was doing advanced things with data because everybody was using SPSS's tools that I was talking to. And then I got to uh, Accenture and found out that by and large, their their advanced analytics for their customers meant group by in the uh, SQL statement, right? So <laughs> a much different version. Uh, so I got to, to work with some really amazing people early on who were pioneering different uses of, of machine learning and, and statistics and in industry. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, John, describe uh, what does an R&D group, what is it charged with inside a large consulting company like Accenture? It's a great question. Basically, it's about identifying emerging technologies and approaches and what those mean for, in this case, you know, Accenture's clients, um, and then building new practices and offerings around those things. So one of one of my uh, actually one of one of the the assignments i got uh, in those days was around 2008 2009 when all the utilities were getting 100 million dollar checks to go make their grids uh, quote unquote smart and so hey you know john we're going to be putting sensors all over this grid what are the things we can do with analytics and visualization tools to to change the way we manage are able to manage and operate a power grid um, so you're still you're still kind of connected to projects Exactly. So, and 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 it's about it's about bringing the the power of these new tools. And in this case, I was working with a startup called Space Time Insight, who had a visualization pre D three era <laughs> visualization tool that allowed you to do geospatial visualization uh, very effectively. Uh, for example, and and on an analytics front, you know, we were working uh, with Python and things like that uh, to implement models around condition monitoring and things like that. And those were fairly new in, in industry, at least, as, as opposed to academia in terms of using those tools and techniques to, to do these kinds of things. And ultimately, Accenture built their smart grid analytics and visualization offerings based on you know the technologies and work we did and, and, and started working with utilities to bring those things to bear on their, you know, build those in, in their actual control rooms and whatnot to, to, to bring the solutions to bear. It was at, at that time, actually, that we were looking around at, at, at ways to store that data um, and, and thought, well, the, the traditional relational database approach uh, for this might work, uh, and even, but even if it does, it's going to be prohibitively expensive to, to scale a, a data architecture to handle this kind of data. 
went looking for a better answer and and came across uh you know Hadoop Cassandra uh, Basho and a few others of the early NoSQL technologies and 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 thus my uh, my big data journey began so then uh did you guys end up deploying any of these uh, new open source projects in production? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, as I was leaving to start uh, SVDS, Accenture was was deploying production um, production solutions based on Cassandra, uh, based on Hadoop, and uh, and several other more specialized stores as well, including things like Neo4j around shipping logistics. So yeah, Accenture has been been pretty successful. Um, I think as a result of having that kind of R and D capability, which I was proud to be a part of, obviously, uh, to to, to bring in and understand these new technologies and, and stay current in them as they, you know, identify the patterns where those technologies can be repeatedly applied, right? So what uh, what was the inspiration for Silicon Valley data science? So why did you and your co-founders, and uh, I guess I first learned about SVDS through the Ed uh, Wilder James, formerly known as Ed Dumbo. <laughs> Indeed, indeed, we're doing our part to to propagate the the name change. So, um, so one of the things that I realized at Accenture was that to to do innovative data projects well um, was was sort of a, a a specialized application area in the sense that if you think about an Accenture and that last comment about I made about them where they're able to apply new technologies to repeatable. Uh, situations, you know, when you're a 300,000 person um, system integrator and and world global consulting company, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, I still own their stock and wish them very well. You, you know, you need to build scalable businesses where the thing you're doing is is fairly repeatable. And we wanted to build a company uh, to work on the hard problems that were still poorly understood, where these new technologies and approaches were making new things possible. And those tend to be much smaller by definition, non-repeated <laughs> uh, projects that unlock a lot of value. And to organize around that specifically, we thought required uh, a new kind of company that was built from the ground up to do that, uh, as opposed to something that's built from the ground up to, to, to industrialize and scale um, repeatable, repeated applications, if the so, distinction. So in many ways, I guess, uh, you went from somewhat of an R&D role at Accenture supporting kind of the... Uh, the main consultants in the project to doing an R and D role where it's also consulting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in a sense, we have we have more directly um, we've built a company around doing what at Accenture we we did as sort of a I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but a company with you know twenty five thirty billion dollars in revenue doesn't care that much about you know a half a million dollar innovation project right over time they need to open strategic new businesses but they weren't built for that and if you look around the market and how it evolves they're generally acquiring that they're they're buying um, progressive agencies in the advertising business they're buying progressive uh, app developing shops and things like that so uh, they're they're getting much more into a mode of acquiring new practices than developing them in-house on the one hand, which is great. And, and in a sense, our observation, well, at least my observation, because I was the one that was still there at the time, was, was hey, we, there's, there's, a really, there's a core need here that 
is, is not doing R&D so Accenture can open new practices. It's solving hard problems to competitively differentiate businesses. And the, so the core idea of, of SVDS is to put together a world-class team of folks who have deep experience in these things, who can do the hard projects and, and solve the currently unsolved problems uh, using these new, new approaches and techniques. But then does that mean that at some point, uh, okay, we've reached our capacity, we can't grow anymore, otherwise uh, we become, well, uh, we left. that's a great question so um you know we look at ourselves much more like you know a a boutique in the style of of maybe pivotal labs on the the app dev shop or uh, eighth light in chicago or you know bcg bain mckinsey on the consulting side which is to say that we never expect to go down market so we're not going to our interest is to have um access to the valuable and hard problems that help a company move the needle and rather than figuring out a way to wash rinse and repeat that and building a, a huge business on bringing that capability to every other company in that industry or something which is your sort of your classic si play our approach is that gives us a lot of you know a that we want to actually do those projects and where we can get skin in the game so that 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 we're participating in the success that we build which is a little unique and one of the one of the th- things we share in common with uh, the the pivotal lab story if if you and the listeners are familiar with their story for instance they built, uh, I think, Twitter's front end at one point and took a lot of stock for that in lieu of cash. And we thought that was an appealing business model. The benefit, however, is that we get to keep the team together as we move from project to project and, and, and maintain that ability to work well together, hit the ground running and do things really fast. So, you know, over time, we build up a portfolio of work we've done that, that has the scaling characteristics of a mutual fund of startups in terms of how value gets uh, created and then ultimately incubated and grown. And, and doing a combination of that, and then um, you know the 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 core cash flow from from the work itself, and working for larger companies to create the the oxygen, so to speak, to make those bets uh, with smaller companies is really the way that we get scale on the work we do, as opposed to 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 racing to become the the next three hundred thousand person consulting organization. It's the world needs those too. We just we just don't don't necessarily want to build another one so much as as build something that does this part of the work very very well. So for the many listeners out there who are familiar with Strata plus Hadoop World, um, John and his uh, cohorts teach two of the most popular uh, tutorials at Strata. Uh, one is called Developing a Modern da- Enterprise Data Strategy, and one is Architecting a uh, Data Platform. So let's talk about these two tutorials and why you think they resonate. So let's start with the one on Developing a Modern en- Enterprise Strategy. Uh, first, uh, what do you guys cover? And second, why do you think it's, uh, it's become so popular? Sure. So, um, the, our conception of what an enterprise data strategy should be is a little, it's, it's perhaps a little different than, than, uh, what sometimes folks talk about in that what we really are teaching, uh, in that session is our view of how you start with, uh, the ambitions of a business and create a roadmap of technology, people, and ultimately capability investments to unlock that business potential. So in, in the three hours, we go through a period of how you, you recognize and then sort of decompose a, a business's ambition into concrete uh, business objectives, which are things you can actually go out and do or build. And then from those, understand what 
technical workloads. I need a database. I need an algorithm that does uh, a recommendation or something like that uh, will unlock that business objective. So, so how technical do you have to be? You don't actually have to be technical at all because this is really about um, understanding and mapping business priority to your technical investments, but the technical investments themselves stay at a pretty high level. Um, so you need to understand sort of modern application of data and, and, um, and, and our customers typically understand their business and, and what's going on there very, very well. And we bring the perspective of understanding the technology and the art of the possible in those engagements. So from a, the technical skills, if you were to, to, to actually leave this class to try and go implement a data strategy yourself, uh, the technical skills you would need would be an understanding of the art of the possible with respect to data technology, not the ability to then go out and drive those projects or know how to build a recommender so much as know that recommenders exist. And if you've got, you know, customer product and preference data, you can generally build one. So you, you, you folks have taught this particular tutorial a few times. So have you heard from alumni? Um, yes, we have. It's, it's, um, it, it's interesting. So, so we talk to folks sometimes right after, sometimes we've heard from people that have, that, that went two years ago, <laughs> um, or, or a year and a half ago, uh, in New York and are reaching out to, um, pick up on the conversation. So there's definitely, um, one of the things I think the class does is, is arm, um, technologists with an understanding of how to relate technology and desired technology investments back to the business. And so, you know, our hope is that folks are able to take that back to their their home uh, enterprise, if you will, and use it to make, uh, to articulate what they think uh, is is the right roadmap for their company. And and sometimes it turns out that takes them a couple, three months and they, they actually... Of course, they can do that without wanting to work with us, but some sample of or some subset of them ultimately ends up reaching out. So we, we get the satisfaction of hearing how that went, so to speak, after the actual session. But it's really cool because, you know, the reason we came up with that offering for ourselves, Ben, was that a lot of folks understood the opportunity of technology. Um, you know, that, that things like Hadoop and machine learning and, and, you know, all the things that go with them represent a real opportunity for the business, but they don't know where to start. And this is a way of prioritizing those efforts and making sure that the technology experience, the experiments that the technologists want to carry out have real business value and are solving real problems. So what about uh, the other tutorial, which I believe is uh, more technical? Uh, it's called architecting a data platform. What do you cover, and uh, and uh, why do you think that's uh, still so? Actually, that's an older tutorial. It's still so popular. I think partly because you and your crew constantly update the content, but I think also for me, it tells me that people are still grappling with uh, architecture. It's it's true. Um, so if if data strategy is sort of what investments should I make uh, to to realize this business ambition, you know, maybe it's maybe it's in a product recommender. Then then our architecture tutorial is okay. How do I implement that? So we're moving into the how. And you know, as you point out, we we update it every time. Um, I'm always joking that that. You know, basically on the plane ride to to each strata, I'm I'm we're we're sort of going okay. Hey, there's a new there's there's these two new entrants. You know, this this time it was Niffy, and uh, <laughs> last time it was Flink. And you know the so there's always new developments. And so I think part of the appeal of that is that we give folks a way to understand 
you know, the various farm animals that are in the Hadoop ecosystem and, 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 and the like, um, and contextualize them in the role they play in an architecture and help folks understand how one can abstract and, and position different technologies well today and tomorrow. So a good example is, is what, what I w- we were talking about earlier um, around Clementine, right? So in, in, in the NLP use case of folks wanting to, to dis- do things like concept uh, discovery in unstructured data, well, folks are doing a lot of development around NLP and there's good open source libraries from Stanford uh, and the like that you can, you can download and work with. There's proprietary solutions and folks are, you know, there's a lot of investment going into this space. And so whatever you pick today, um, chances are in two or three years, there's going to be a better mousetrap. And so part of our approach to the architecture tutorial is helping folks think about, well, how do I abstract that so that I can have the benefit of these new technologies, but I don't tightly, you know, I don't build them into my architecture in a way that makes it incredibly painful to change my mind or take advantage of things later. So it's, it's you know, the course goes through these com- at, at the component level, right? Your, you know, ingestion, uh, acquisition and ingestion of data. And then, you know, what kind of processing should you do on the way in? And, and what are our options for storage? And then what do dimensions do I need to think about to choose these things? Because it's moving so fast that the actual logos or technologies themselves aren't the point so much as here's a framework for you to understand that world so that you can design an architecture, but also so you can understand how how these choices can be changed later and how you can um, you know take smart approaches to 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 I, I hesitate to use the term future proof, but make yourself resilient and able to uh, take advantage of new technologies. And in 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 many ways, there's no way you can answer many of these deep technical questions in a three-hour tutorial. So from what I gather, what you folks are trying to do is give them kind of uh, tools so that yes. they can go back and uh, and do the evaluation themselves because many of these really depend on their particular circumstances, their workloads, and their data. Exactly. It's, it's um, the, you know, one of the nice things about the vendor community is they're generally speaking willing to do POCs with your data as a, as a potential buyer, right? So understanding how these things work in, in somebody's specific situation is still really important. It's hard to generalize from other people's experience. And so, yeah, we, you know, everywhere from, you know, we have a separate talk as well as parts of this in the tutorial around things like choosing, you know, your, your choice is not done when you've chosen your Hadoop distribution. Now you have to choose the file formats you're going to use to actually store things. And there's a huge difference in performance based on those. And, you know, whenever we, we go into this with a client and we're deciding what file formats to use, we generally speaking have some notion of the one we think is best suited for this. And it almost never is the one that we end up choosing. Um, it's, <laughs> and, also, and also, actually, uh, it, uh, nowadays, you know, as as cloud computing becomes more important, so then you start uh, having to consider should I be using these object stores as opposed to something like HDFS? Exactly. Yeah. How do how do I use S three versus you know and and we've got you know we help people build architectures that that you know in some cases are spinning up EMR clusters to run on S three in other cases are loading data into a sort of a, a, an IaaS style Cloudera cluster up on AWS and 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 various you know and feeding 
some combination of Redshift or uh, or or a, uh, a a different data warehousing kind of technology running up on virtual machines. So people will have a huge variety of the technologies they're using all at once around these things, right? And it can have you know one of the points I really try to stress in in the the architecture tutorial is that, uh, and this is confirmed in my conversations and traveling around industry all the time is that there's a huge impact that your technology and infrastructure have on your ability to derive value with data that, that, you know, you, you can, you can create a world where it's very easy to find and, and leverage and join data in new ways to, to test out hypotheses. And you can create a world where it's darn near impossible. Uh, and, and so, you know, one of the reasons I'm as a data scientist, so passionate about that architecture tutorial is, is because the more people that learn that lesson and are able to implement good back-end architectural systems to support their data science endeavors, the, the more fun we're going to all have uh, doing data science on them. And it's a really important part of, of the puzzle. So you're now, you're now a few years into uh, teaching this tutorial and also a few years into uh, SVDS. What's your assessment as to how, um, uh, I guess, the wider industry not just not just the tech industry, but just the companies. Where are companies at in terms of their understanding of these technologies and techniques? It's um has, has it improved <laughs> since you first started <laughs> teaching this tutorial? I imagine you every tutorial you have uh, you have new students, right? So it's true. It's although it's interesting. Like we 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 both ask people to seed the the session with their particular burning platforms or problems and you get a combination of that and the, and the comments around it ahead of time and then people raise their hand as we're getting started the interesting thing is that in, in any particular location it change, the the questions go through a, a similar cycle so you know i think um probably not surprising to say that the the west coast technology community um and you know strata in san jose was probably the most sophisticated earliest adopting crowd of these technologies and and the new york uh group was was about you know a year the questions we got in year x uh in in san jose you would get in year x plus one in new york but you see this progression of people starting with you know the how do i choose questions and then moving into the you know how do i integrate or i feel like i have this impedance mismatch between my ingest architecture and my storage architecture you know questions that that start to, to demonstrate a, that they're into these endeavors. They're playing with the technologies. They're trying to get them to do something and, and they're running into various kinds of problems. And so, yes, it's absolutely, the, the market is progressing. It's becoming more sophisticated and people are having success applying these technologies and getting real value out of them. And the technologies themselves, hopefully, are getting simpler. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they absolutely are getting a combination of simpler and more predictable, both of which are <laughs> pretty important. Um, you know, for instance, three years ago, we were all talking about Spark. Spark is this this really cool, uh, relatively new thing. Um, and, you know, a year and a half ago, we we had it in production with a client of ours over the holidays at one of the largest retailers in the country dealing with Black Friday traffic, right? So you see these technologies go from, you know, sort of the the 
the sing the there's there's one or two talks by some really forward looking people to you know dom you know the huge traffic you all get with the Spark tutorials and trainings ahead of, you know in the training section of Strata and people are bringing them to bear into production and 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 realizing real value. What I will add is that that is people are successfully doing that. It is still incredibly difficult to achieve. So the path. I had this conversation this morning with a prospective client, and I, I probably have it, you know, two or three times a week. And one of the big challenges they have is that, okay, I've, I've done some interesting data science. Now I wanted to put some kind of capability into production and actually realize that value. And that's hard because maybe I developed the, the model in, in Enterprise Miner and my engineering team is in Java. And I used an algorithm for which Java's libraries aren't too friendly. And, I, you know, it's going to be really hard to parallel. Etc. 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 So folks are are still, I think, struggling with the the last step of of. Um... But that that's easy to solve, John. You know the answer, right? <laughs> What's just, that? Just use deep learning for everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about, and I'm not actually sure. So uh, uh, let me know if uh, if. This is a topic that you're actually not that interested in, but uh, I believe you're interested in the intersection of agile and data science, right? <laughs> the rumor is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, explain agile to our listeners and, and why you think uh, that mindset is, is a good one for data science. Sure. So... Um... Actually, if I can, if I can flip the order, let me describe why, why data science is an inherently iterative, non nonlinear activity, and then I'll describe why agile is a good fit for it. And that's basically the story. So, you know, data science is a inherently probabilistic exercise, uh, which is to say that that you you don't know if you're going to, for instance, be able to predict something well enough to do, let's say, build a next best offer capability for a call center, right? People are calling in, you want to give the call center rep the, the, the next best offer they can make to that customer um, in order to sell them new products and services. And so you need to be able to predict that reasonably well, or else you're wasting everybody's time. Time and you won't know if you can until you try. And so the process of developing that kind of predictive model is one where you're bringing in some data, you're you're understanding the shape of that data, you're studying a target. In this case, you know you're trying to figure out if you can predict the most likely next purchase that customer will make of your catalog. And so you go through this process of bringing some data, building a model, testing that model against some some held out test data and going, OK, at this point, I'm, you know, not very accurate. Um, maybe if I bring in this additional con contextual data, that will help improve my model and I'll get better at it. And eventually you'll cross some threshold where you feel like you have a good enough model to actually provide a valuable service to the market. And then you go off and you, you engage in a test of that capability in the market. So, you know. How long, if, if somebody wants to ask me, how long does it take to build a next best offer style predictive engine? The, the answer is it depends. It depends on, you know, the data you have, uh, how clean it is, and our ability to tease signal out of that and build a useful model. And that can be a nonlinear activity. Which is to say, you know, like painting or writing a poem, you can you can be sitting there uh, thinking about what features you might engineer from the data you have, and the aha moment of uh, when you think of the one that actually becomes the difference maker can take a while. So 
an example of this is a project that I recall my friend uh, Raid uh, from Accenture doing, where he was trying to guess the end price of an auction for, for eBay auctions. And when he changed it from a continuous prediction problem so that his, his algorithm spat out, it's that, you know, that'll, that will sell for $11.75 and turned it into a categorization problem where he was basically picking you know, between buckets of 50 cent intervals. Just that little reframing of the problem made a huge difference, right? And he tried a bunch of things to get there. So the idea is that any data science activity has this kind of uncertainty where you don't know exactly how you're going to solve the problem. You have probably a pretty good idea that you can because people have solved similar problems. And you probably have a pretty good idea of how you're going to start. At least we generally do when we're starting these kinds of things. But we can't say that it's going to take two months, that we will be at this point in, you know, week three of month two. And uh, if we're not, we're ahead of, we're behind schedule. And if we are, if we've already done that, we're ahead of schedule because the projects don't play out that way. So the advantage of Agile, which is a concept that started, I think, in the software, at least in this sense, in the software development world, um, is around rapid iterative product development and getting rapid feedback cycles from customers. And so in this case, we don't always have customers. And it, and it's, good for your, <laughs> it's good for your health, too, because you're always standing up, I hear. <laughs> yes, and yes, and in the morning, you, you have stand-ups. You, so you have devices to share status, to coordinate with your team and things like that that are very efficient, quick, and lightweight and don't involve TPF reports, so it's TPF, <laughs> to quote office space. So, you know, it's, it's a process that's designed to manage rapid iterative work. Now, engineering a product versus engineering a data science solution are slightly different and that data science tends to be less deterministic, although both of them have plenty of creativity involved and, and both, both groups spend lots of time staring at the wall trying to think of their approach to something. But the benefit of Agile is that it manages a the execution of these things in cycles where you learn something, you share those results with your customer, whether that's a you know physical company's customer or your internal stakeholder in your organization, and you take that feedback and move forward. So back to our example. When so, we're working this, with, uh, so this agile data science, is this something you yourselves, you at SVD, SVDS are doing and also how widespread is it at this point? So it's definitely something that, that we use in our projects with our customers to, to be successful. And, you know, we have a strong preference for working that way because that's how we, you know, one of the ways we are successful. There's certainly other folks that agree with us. Chris Berg over at Data Kitchen and I uh, have, have talked about this at length. You know, there's there's plenty of other folks out there in, who are leading data science efforts that, that use these kind of approaches. Interestingly, when I go out and talk and I, I, I get asked to go talk to some companies internal teams and things like that at times about this and and it's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the leadership wants someone else to come in and, and help their teams understand why we do this because in data science there's a lot of um, a lot of pushback on process generally and you know what I always say to my team and others is look this is the the lightest weight way we've come up with doing these things if you can come up with an easier lighter weight way we're all for it <laughs> you know and believe me you should, you should see what we were doing at Accenture <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, we've got a few Walmart veterans and and, and uh, Accenture veterans and and people from other you know big hairy companies that will tell war stories that <laughs> you'll suddenly think this is the so greatest. Is this thing. something <laughs> that uh, you think that uh, uh, people are going to start getting trained on? Uh, I do. I do. Um, you know, we're we're working with a lot of companies who have. Um, 
very very talented data science teams that that struggle to manage and deliver results with them and it's not because the data scientists aren't good it's not because the people managing them aren't good it's that i i think you know non-linear processes are tough for people that's why advertising agencies are sort of a special rarefied you know their their own kind of thing in certain aspects of that creative process uh and there's an element of that in this and and so people need management techniques that accommodate and foster and help those sort of nonlinear activities succeed rather than attempt to force them into linearity, so to speak, right? Um, how big are, how big is the ideal team in agile data science? Great question. So I think um, in our experience, it's when you get much beyond six or seven, maybe eight or nine folks who are, are building things, it starts to get tough to have an efficient stand-up where you do a round robin and everybody sort of does a, this is what I was doing yesterday. This is, you know, I was exploring this data set yesterday and looked at these three three variables and did these tests and found these two were, you know, co-varied much more closely than I thought. And today I'm moving on to looking at these three. And I'm particularly interested to see if um, there's, you know, independent variation in this one, because I think those are the two key components that if we can get something uh, together, we might start modeling with. It's, you know, so, so it's a yesterday day it's a day and, and by the way i'm blocked because that's a data set that that jim was going to onboard and jim has not onboarded that so jim give me a heads up uh when that when that's in there it's just very simple stuff right but it definitely communicates and allows people to understand progress and allows the folks managing the project to to speak back to their business stakeholders and help manage their expectations and the like and and i think you know we meet a lot of data science teams that don't have any you know they they have they understand how to do the data science Science. They don't understand how to. Ma- they don't have any real method of managing the data science project. Uh, well, and what happens pretty- when you have a team of twenty, and the team of twenty is a mix of data scientists, data engineers? Absolutely. So, generally speaking, we would subdivide those into some two groups for purposes of things like stand up, right? Because just to get through, you know, twenty people in that little formulation that I'd said would would take a lot of time, and and the the key thing to understand is who needs to know about whom and 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 what they're doing in other words you want to create two groups that have that are functioning relatively independently uh, so that you can pass the information between those two groups through uh, what some folks call like a scrum of scrum or you know just across the product leadership as they update each other or what have you. But that's generally how we we prefer to start subdivising things as, as things get big. Sometimes it's just a big project and stand-ups start taking a long time and, and that, you know, it is what it is. It's the right thing to do for the project. Interesting. So your prediction is that at some point this will become much more mainstream in the in data science. I think it will because it's a nice light way to to manage progress. And you know, we have customers telling us all the time that they really that they think that in working with us and their teams picking up this method, it's made them much more productive. It's not made them better data scientists. It's created a, a world where, for instance, people spend you know less time working on a model that ultimately is a dead end. Because, you know, they they have much more frequent conversation with the ultimate consumer. So basically, it it, it, it um, short circuits a bunch of potential rat holes um, that, that aren't necessary, you know, that people don't go into a rat hole thinking I'm going into a rat hole, they go down a path of, of inquiry. But if you understand that, hey, no, actually, unless we can get this model to do this, or, you know, we need to have a model that is accurate based on this data only because of regulatory concerns or something like that, um, that they can they can sort of 
stick their head up and get inputs and, and realize, hey, I've actually conclusively demonstrated myself. We're not going to get there. So I don't need to keep trying to better satisfy somebody that this is the wrong path. I can short circuit that. This stuff happens all the time across across data science style projects, right? Because the myriad of methods we have available to us, the different ways we have of solving those problems. And then, like you said, you add in the engineering aspect. Well, if you're going to be doing that, that means I'm going to have to surface the data to the algorithm in a different way, right? The, the thing you just did means that you know I need to change my my inputs and 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 do my my ETL a little bit differently on the way in towards that model. So those are the kinds of coordinations that you know if if you don't have those going on, then you get the model done. Suddenly an engineering team's yelling at you because because they built for something else. Very interesting. So this has been great, John. And uh, again, just to remind the listeners out there, uh, John and his team will be at Strata Plus Hadoop World in New York. And they will be teaching their popular tutorials, architecting a data platform, and developing a modern enterprise data strategy. Thanks. Looking forward to it. You can follow John Acred on Twitter at Big Data Analysis. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.